This is the Transit Matters Podcast. Today is the 19th of April, 2016. Transit Matters advocates for fast, frequent, reliable, and effective public transit in and around Boston. As part of our vision to repair, upgrade, and expand the MBTA, we work to change the conversation around transit issues through informed planning and critical analysis. I'm Mark Ibunya. I'm our communications and social media manager. By day, I'm an IT systems administrator, and by night, I'm the Leslie Nope of transit, geeking out over transit celebs, governance, policy, and civic engagement. Hi, I'm Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I work as an attorney, but in my free time, I like to indulge my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks. Hi, I'm Jared. I'm the newest board member here at Transit Matters. I'm from Oklahoma City by way of Houston and Cincinnati, and I work on community revitalization and volunteerism with AmeriCorps. And my passion is where equity, transit, and housing meet. And we're trying something new today. We're live streaming on Facebook. By the time you hear this, we'll have a companion vi- uh, video companion uh, to this podcast on our Facebook page, which you can check out at facebook.com forward slash transit matters uh on the podcast today we have we are joined by brad bellows uh brad bellows is an architect in cambridge and served on the central artery rail link task force uh under governor weld back in the early 1990s brad you want to tell us a little about yourself yes thank you um (laughs) welcome everybody i'm glad people are listening to hear about the north south rail link so the north south rail link is is um a plan to connect our presently divided commuter rail systems in Massachusetts, as many people may know. We have a northern system and a southern system, which serve um, something like 380 route miles and almost 140 stations. But they're separated by a one-mile gap in the middle, and that one-mile gap essentially uh, undermines the quality of service, the operating efficiency, and uh, by by connecting that gap, although it's not a simple matter to do it, Uh, it has a tremendous leveraging impact on the existing uh, infrastructure that we own. And so um, the Central Artery Rail Link Task Force was was an effort, as as was mentioned, in the 1990s to solve this problem. Um, That then evolved into a project called the North-South Rail Link, which was a modified approach at a a slightly deeper grade uh, using tunnel boring machine technology to make the connection. Uh, and there was a very detailed study from 95 to 2003 that demonstrated the feasibility of this project, both technically and economically. But unfortunately, in 2003, with the ever-mounting cost um, overruns of the Central Artery Project, the, the North-South Rail Link was a casualty of that. And so there's been a group of us working since 2003 to keep the project um, from being forgotten. And, and in fact... Um, there are n- for a number of reasons, it's much more practical and, frankly, necessary than it was then, and we're trying to sort of um, get it back on the agenda and having some success with that, I would say. Well, Brett, thanks for giving us uh, a little bit of background there. I do want to get a little more into the history because, um, you know, we don't have to only uh, talk about uh, the future. We can also revel in, in how things got to <laughs> the place they are now. But I did want to uh, take a short stop and, and find out a little bit more about um, how you found yourself as an advocate um, for the North-South Rail Link. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that you started as an architect and uh, were on this uh, task force uh, uh, with Governor Weld. How, how did it come about that you found yourself on this task force um, back in the 90s? Well, I, I, good question. I became aware of the project uh, in, I think, around 1991. There was a wonderful uh, transportation activist named Guy Rosmarin who contacted me and a colleague based on some earlier week work that we had done um, um, 
and asked us if we would help him to jumpstart the connection between North and South stations. And so we formed a group called the Citizens Transportation Action Campaign in 91 with, with a number of other um, kind of a broad spectrum of people, union guys and, and business leaders, and and began really lobbying the, in the legislature with the help of John Bussinger, who some of you may know, to and, and ended up signing up almost like something like 90% of the legislature to support this plan. George Mitchell from Maine, who was Senate Majority Leader at the time and, and obviously wanted to see Maine connected to the Northeast Corridor, um, managed to secure funding for a much more serious study uh, to the tune of about $4 million in 1995. That study then proceeded from 95 to 2003, and during that period I served on an oversight board um, ca- called the Citizens, Citizens Advisory Committee for the North-South Rail Link. And the, um, unfortunately, in 2003, when Governor Romney came into office, uh, by that time the Central Artery had, had been running over budget to an astounding degree, and uh, the decision was taken, we think ill-advisedly, to shut down the North-South Rail Link project. And um, this was despite the fact that it had been shown to have incredible operating benefits, cost savings up to $100 million a year from being able to run a unified system. Um, and and so those of us who'd served on this oversight board decided to keep the project alive, and we've been working since then. Governor Dukakis has been a part of it almost from the beginning. He, he actually, actually will often say that the only reason he did the Central Artery Project is because there were two railroad tracks in the middle of it connecting North and South Station. And those were eliminated from the project when President Reagan vetoed federal funding for it. There was a furious negotiation to try and override Reagan's veto. And in the, in the course of that negotiation, the rail component was eliminated. So that's a little bit of the... I'm glad you mentioned uh, uh, President Reagan because I was also going to ask because uh, I had heard that there was a role there. So, well, now this I, I had read, and, and by the way, for those who um, are just now finding out about um, about the North-South um, Rail Link um, Task Force, um, sorry, the North-South Rail Link Working Group, you should definitely check out uh, the NorthSouthRailLink.org um, website. It's fantastic. There's a lot of history as well as um, animation about uh, the current proposal. And, uh, you know, if you go on the website and if you've uh, been a student at all of the, the history of the North-South Rail Link, you'll know that as early as 1912, um, this was deemed to be a necessary project. Um, and I, I don't know if, if back then they were thinking more about just the link because there, there was, a, um, you know, a connection at one point on on Atlantic connecting the stations, but do you do you know anything, Brad, about the history about why it hadn't happened between 1912 and the 80s and 90s when it was brought up again? Well, it's, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's actually really interesting. I don't have the exact reason why the project was abandoned, but uh, let's talk about why they wanted the rail link back then. If you look at every major city uh, and the way the railroads grew up, the railroads were all built by separate companies. They all had their own private termi- termini terminals at the on the edge of town. Uh, there were there were four of them, I think, four or five of them at North Station. There were three, about three, I think, at uh, South Station, and Toward the end of the 19th century, those were unified. North Station was actually called Union Station because it was the union of these particular separate private railroads. South Station opened in 1900, unifying the Boston and Albany and the Boston and Providence and and the old colony lines. And 
and those almost and and within a year a rail link was built as, on an elevated line between North and South Station, which as you alluded to, and so you would say so problem solved, but that wasn't the case. The problem wasn't just getting passengers to and from the two stations. Obviously, with with a change of seat, which has some disadvantages as well, but but nonetheless, it was a better connection than we have now by far. But the real driver was the inefficiency of a stub end terminal, because the railroads realized. Even with 28 tracks at South Station, they were spending half of their effort just moving trains in and out of the, st- of the of backing them out of the terminal to bring another train in. And it was, it was so inherently inefficient that there had to be a better way. And the better way was to connect the terminals and do run-through service, okay? And this, was, this actually happened all around the world. Stockholm has a, has a rail link that was built around the turn of the century. So does Hamburg. Montreal built the tunnel under Mount Royal at about the same time. So it was the state of the art. Everybody got to this point. Some people got over the hump and did it. But what happened in Boston was it was discussed for several years. I've got all these front page articles in the newspapers, which are fascinating reading. The the public the the commission from the Massachusetts uh, legislative commission that reviewed this, which I actually have here. I can show you on the laptop. It's um, they cite the same kinds of arguments that we do today: better downtown distribution, the operating efficiency, which was seen to actually pay for the cost of the project practically. But if you look at what else was going on at that time, it, we got toward 1914. It was still in play. 1914, World War One breaks out. Mayor Curley's elected. There are all sorts of things going on in the city, and the project got deferred. And by the time World War One was over, the whole car revolution was well underway train ridership was starting to drop off and so then you get world war ii the elevated was taken down in 1941 or something like that coming out of the war the federal highway project really is exploding all across the city federal funding for the national highway system and the central artery is under construction but where do they put the central artery it actually follows the alignment that had been laid out for the rail link so it's kind of ironic but that was such a short couple of decades, our love affair with cars and putting everybody on highway viaducts. You get to the 70s, and there was this plan called the Interbelt to build a, a, something like an eight-lane w- eight viaduct through the middle of Cambridge within you know, 50 feet of the Museum of Fine Arts and Gardner Museum. It was really kind of incredible. Cambridge and Roxbury and yeah, uh, it, Charles Gate, I guess. I don't know where this, it was going to go. This came so close to happening, and it was just by dint of citizen opposition that it was stopped. And to his infinite credit, Governor Frank Sargent was the one who said, you know what, we're pulling the plug on this. We're going to do a thorough review. This is what then led to the extension of the red line and to all the transit investments that followed under Governor Dukakis' administration. But, and that sort of marked the end of the high water mark of highway building. And so here we are now, a few more decades later, realizing that, the high, that we can't expand highways. Nobody wants to be in their car hours a day anyway. A whole new generation has come up that wants to live near transit and lead a sane life, you know. And so the, the rail links moment has come back. And add to that the fact that interest rates are 3% or less, which is amazing. If we can't build infrastructure when money is 3%, when can we? <laughs> so, and it was 6 or 7% when this thing was last looked at in 2003. So that's a huge difference right there. But an even more pivotal thing is we've got an urgent capacity issue at South Station, which we now know is going to cost at least $1.6 billion to solve. There were huge overruns in that project, and, and it had been budgeted at $850 million and, and it doubled in l- a little over a year. So, and that's not the end of it because North Station has the same issues. 
maybe not quite as severe, but there was a land taking in 2014 for two more tracks at North Station. The drawbridges into North Station are falling apart. They're budgeted 100 to $150 million to replace those. And to make matters worse, these stub-end terminals need layovers. And if you expand South Station, you've got to add layover space at Woodette Circle or Beacon Park Yard. And this is now incredibly valuable land. And our argument to Governor Baker, Governor Weldon Dukakis, and I met with Governor Baker last September and made the case that when you look at the cost structure around expanding your sub-end terminals, it's such a loser compared to run-through service, which gives you more capacity. It actually opens up surface real estate for more productive use. And it's, it's what all cities around the world are doing. And we've been pointing to rail links in Sweden, Malmo, Sweden, Leipzig, Germany, Stockholm, Sweden, um, Zurich, and, uh, and several in Canada. And in, it's interesting that the prices for these systems are far less than was projected here, even though most, most of their building costs are higher. So that's, that has then led to the governor authorizing, finally, uh, a $2 million study, which the legislature had appropriated money for in the 2014 bond bill. And tell us exactly what uh, that $2 million w- would go for. The stated purpose, if you read the legislative language, is to update and complete the DEIR slash DEIS, which is the permitting document that's used for reviewing infrastructure projects. And I'm not sure that $2 million is actually going to be sufficient for the entire scope, but it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly going to be enough, I think, if we're careful about it, to look at the key financial and technical issues and ridership issues that are needed to protect the alignment. And that's the key goal, because at this point, there's so much construction going on all along the corridor, particularly in South Bay and North Point, uh, Bullfinch Triangle near North Station, the Hook Wharf site that we've talked about near South Station, that there's a very real risk that the alignment could be compromised by the foundations for these buildings. And so that's, that was the legislature's core goal, is to protect the alignment. So you mentioned um, you j- you just now mentioned ridership, which I want to come back to. Um, but I, I do I do want to take a moment to pause and, and emphasize. Uh, so so we, we said you know we had a link between North and South Station with the elevated, and so for all the people um, who I think are very practical people who would say, you know, if you're trying to solve for the link between the two stations, there's other cheaper ways of doing it. Um, and I think so. The answer there is um, at least fr- fr- from our viewpoint would be. We've solved that before, and that that wasn't actually the main problem. It was the operating cost of running terminal um, railroad facilities. Well, that's there's there's actually two answers to that. It is the case that even when they had this this elevated connection for passengers, which actually isn't a great connection, and it doesn't do what we need. It, it doesn't meet the modern standard for intermodality. Let's put it that way, and we can talk more about that. But the driver at that time was better downtown distribution and solving the operational problem. But let's look at the at why um, the north-south rail link would be a far more effective uh, intermodal system than a surface connector would be. Right? You want a one-seat ride or at most a cross-platform connection. You want your rail system to be connected to every transit line. So wherever you're coming from, you want to be able to walk across the platform to change to a different line or take an escalator and end up on your subway line. And an elevated connection that runs between the two terminals requires you to change trains several times. And it's not, it doesn't meet the same standard. And it certainly doesn't solve the operational problem. 
So for the everyday commuter, that would honestly basically be what they're already experiencing. Exactly. We want know. essentially we want to turn yeah. rail into right. into transit. And and that link is really already um, people coming from the south, say on Amtrak and going north. They already have that solution by taking the Orange Line from Back Bay. Right. So we, we kind of already have that. Um, now, the, the other thing that you that you mentioned was the South Station and, and North Station expansions. And we've also heard from people um, who I think are pretty practical persons saying, well, you know, you actually um, are going to need the expansion anyway. And so and, and that's it's a very near term issue um, that we need to have um, the ability to bring more traffic, especially into South Station. Um let me is, it, is it an either or? Is this something that you could have both? I mean, if, if, if we're talking in in the two point three billion range, maybe I'm wrong on um, on on the rail on the north south rail link, and we're talking about one point six billion on the expansion. It's not something that we would want to do both if we don't have to. It seems. Yeah, to me. I, I think let's. There are two dimensions to the either or question. One is um, political, and the other is technical. Political and financial, and the other is technical. In terms of actual physical conflicts between the two projects. I don't think that's the driver. I think the issue is financial and political. If you're going to if you've spent 2 billion dollars expanding stub end terminals and that number is ni- is 2015 dollars, 1.6 billion for south station expansion and several hundred million for north station expansion. And we know that number is rising. So, if you've spent 2 let's call it 2 billion. If you've spent 2 billion dollars expanding stub end terminals, there's no way within any of our lifetimes any anyone's going to turn around and say, well, "Let's spend another couple billion making those projects obsolete." <laughs> okay? So, on, but on the subject of the capacity, yes, we need capacity. That doesn't mean we need surface expansion. And in fact, if you look at the, if you compare the uh, uh, the capacity of a through system to the capacity of any stub end system, it's it's a tremendous difference. We have 13 tracks at South Station. The plan is to add seven more to get up to 20. And you're talking about trying to be able to handle a cup 400 or something. I don't remember the exact number uh, of of trains per day. The Philadelphia Rail Link, which is four-track connector in downtown Philadelphia, which was built back in the 80s, carries 660 trains per day. The Zurich Rail Link, which just opened last year, carries something like 350 regional trains per day and 140 intercity trains per day on a two-track rail link. So, it just and even compare it to the Red Line at South Station. The Red Line at South Station, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it has about the same passengers per day as the South Station does right. with, with uh, six times as many tracks. So if you think about the dwell time of a, a train at, in a stub-end terminal, it takes them maybe 20, 25 minutes to get a train in and out and another train back in because it d- doesn't just have to pull out of the platform. It's got to clear all the switches. And since the platforms are only accessible from one end, there's the walk time it takes people to get down to their train. I mean, it's, it's a really slow and inefficient process compared to a subway line where the trains are in the stations for maybe like 90 seconds or less than that. And they're just They're just pumping people <laughs> through. So it's sort of like saying, you know, you've got this bucket brigade right. and we need to get more buckets and we need more people to carry the buckets or just get a pipe. Right. Well, and speaking of, of, of uh, Philadelphia, yeah. whenever they did that project, was there any... Uh, interest in Boston, or was there anyone in Boston saying, you know, oh, you know, they, you know, here's this project that we had talked about in the past, and here's an example of it happening. I, I know that when that happened, we were in the middle of doing Orange Line expansion and mm-hmm. and Red Line expansion, so there might have yeah. been some financial constraints. But do, do you have you seen have you come across any any articles in your in your research of, of people looking to that? You know, that was in the mid '80s, and um, and that's 
and it was certainly always talked about. You know, when I was starting on this in the early 90s, it was fresh in everyone's memory, at least in the transportation world. People were aware that it had happened. I think there may be some cultural issues in Boston where Boston doesn't think that it needs to look <laughs> to Philadelphia for an example. But it's... Um, it's certainly proven to be incredible. It was, it was a, you know, incredibly transformative for Philadelphia, and they've gone on, you know, investing. How the city has had a tremendous resurgence since those days. Do you think it might be also just kind of a a way American or may way American commuter rail uh, operations kind of look at at things because you've got, you know, you you have a through system in New York, but they don't they don't use it. You know, you can travel through, uh, you know, through Penn Station from New Jersey over to uh, over to Queens, but. Sometimes yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the fact that the Northeast Corridor even exists is precisely because so many cities built rail links back at the turn of the century. And this is the same time that we were talking about, you know, when right. I mentioned uh, some of the European examples. That's the same time period, early, the well, first, first decade of the, of the 1900s is when the, the Hudson River tunnels and the East River tunnels were built, which is an amazing story, just how the, uh, how the connection was run through Manhattan. Uh, there's a great book called Entering Gotham by Jill mm. Johns if you're if you're into that sort of thing it's fantastic and uh, yeah so the New York Rail Link dates back to that um, the Washington there actually Washington Union Station was built in that same decade and there was a rail link built through Washington it runs right in front of the Capitol building I think it's called the First Street Tunnel mm. and uh, um, the the portals for that are right behind the Longworth building which is where Seth Moulton's office is <laughs> so it's um, that's why you have through service to Richmond right. you know through Union Station because of these links. So um, this brings up an interesting question, which is something I, I, I always try to make a point of pointing out, that this project is located, will be located in Boston, and it will benefit Boston greatly. But it's not about Boston. It's not more money for Boston. It's a regional project. And the real biggest beneficiaries are all the, all the people outside Boston who are cut off by vo- Boston's veto. You know, the fact that we don't have a rail link in Boston because Boston <coughs> hasn't supported one through, throughout Menino's administration, for example, what is, whatever his other virtues may have been, it, this wasn't one of them. And Boston was too ready to say, you know what, people can get to us. And beyond that, you know, it's not our problem. And so all of northern New England, New Hampshire, Maine, are cut off from the economy of the Northeast Corridor, which is 20% of the United States GNP. You know, and there are a lot of people out there that are hurting that. And I think this gets to the issue of the political support and the potential federal support that this project could find, because this is not a transit project for Boston. In fact, we try to make a point of not calling it transit, although I do want to sort of blur the distinction ultimately. I think if you look at European practice, the kind of institutional uh, rigid distinction between rail and transit is starting to be blurred there. You get these tram trains and we want we want this to to offer offer more of the frequency of service that a uh, transit system has absolutely and um i also want to talk about the the social justice components of this project uh, there was an interesting study just last year by a a group of people at the kennedy school talking about that identified access to transit in particular public transportation as not just a but key, but the key driver in terms of uh, economic mobility right because if you cannot get to a job um, it's it just it, it 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 just nips opportunity in the bud and that's one of the things that um, makes this particularly important we've got gateway cities all across the, the state that have been basically locked out of the economic resurgence you see in Boston and Cambridge. 
And in fact, the um, the economic bubble, the, the real estate bubble you see in Cambridge and Boston with these stratospheric you know, condo prices and commercial rents is a measure of how broken these markets are. You know, if we had a if we had a working market for housing and for commercial real estate, these spikes would tend to level out. People would say, you know what, I'll just locate in Lowell. But who's going to do that? You can't get anywhere from Lowell. You right. can get a few places, but you can't get every place the way you can from the center. And so we're trying to create a, a fairer and, and, frankly, more competitive environment for this Commonwealth. And it's not just to help the gateway cities. It's for the gateway cities to help us. Right. Because even even here in the city of Boston, we have uh, we've spent the state has spent two hundred million dollars upgrading the Fairmount corridor into uh, the Indigo line, and then is kind of halfway there as far as operations and and uh, I mean there's still a lot that we can unlock with real rapid transit service on that corridor and turning it into an example of um, what each of the branches coming out of Boston can be with the North-South Rail Link. Exactly. And yeah. and I was interested, and you may know more than I do about the status of this, but there's long been discussion about running DMUs on right. the Fairmont line. I think that's recently been kind of reactivated. It's not completely off the table. From uh, There was a re- an article that came out where it's, I think, either Secretary Pollack or the, the governor himself said... It's not completely off the table, but we're looking into it. We're leaving it as an option, but so do yeah. do all your listeners know what DMUs are? Uh, Is we, it worth a, br- a brief yeah, can, sort of recap on that? Do you yeah, want to go? No, no. We uh, uh, yeah. So DMUs are self-contained uh, rail cars. So our some of our listeners who are listening in and know the history of the North South Rail Link and how far back it goes already know about the bud the bud liners uh and but for our some of our newer viewers uh the D, a DMU is like a passenger car like a red line car or something but instead of being powered by a third rail uh it's powered by an electric uh diesel motor that can either provide uh, mechanical traction to the wheels or you know generating electricity that allows the train to operate without necessarily having a locomotive at the front so. yeah the, i would i would um frame that uh, i think you, you're pretty close on that and i would yeah. i would just say the mu stands for multiple unit yep. and the core idea is that it's a self-propelled car yep right so it doesn't need a locomotive and that's important because if you want to run trains during the middle of the day mm-hmm. you don't want to have to crank up uh, a locomotive and and haul six cars to yeah. do it because you're only going to fill two of them. Yeah. Cause Whereas if you have MUs and they can be either diesel multiple units or electric multiple units mm-hmm. or bi mode, which is actually a huge number of those systems in Europe, which mm-hmm. I could talk about. But the uh, you can run two tr- two cars. Yep. And and make money. Yeah. Or at least not lose money. And the uh, so it actually gives you incredible operating flexibility, and mm-hmm. this is the core. The As- assuming you can do a single operator, which is, is yeah. an issue we're going to have to address that's, at that's some right. point. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. And the but I think you know it, it's important to say that the net job impact would be an increase, not a drop. Oh, sure, right. Yeah. I think you're so completely this is, right. This is not challenging the more union. trains could yeah, exactly still need more drivers. Right? That's right, and yeah. it and it's going to you know it's such a, it, what we've uh, there are rail consultants. There's a wonderful rail consultant based in in uh, London named uh, Michael Shabis that that has done a study of ter- the Toronto system and shown how built a business case for electrification there, showing that if you run your commuter rail system like an old fat, like your grandfather's rail system, and electrify it, it's a complete non-starter. But 
if you look at the performance advantages of EMUs, the acceleration, mm-hmm. the um, the simple, the lower maintenance cost of electric power versus diesel, and particularly the ability to run shorter train sets throughout the day, you now have reduced your layover requirements, you've increased the utilization of your equipment, and you have a huge bump right. in ridership because of the faster service. Right. Um, the capabilities, I think, will change people's perceptions of how they can be used. Exactly. Similar yeah. to the way... The North-South Rail Link could change people's perception of how commuter rail can be regional rail, yep. right. what kind exactly. of connections are possible. And I think, you know, um, I, I've said it before, and this is not to harp on uh, Frank DePaula, who is, you know, does does his best and does a, does a great job. But, you know, he, he had said, well, you know, we commuter rail is meant to run, you know, hundreds of people from the suburbs into the city at 60 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, and and it functions at peak and, and, it, and it doesn't do well with midday service. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, that's certainly that's true as long as you're, if you're running locomotives hauling six cars, exactly. that's certainly right. the case. So we could completely change the idea of, of how they could be used right. if we were to have this link and if we were to have, um, you know, uh, EMUs, electrical multi- electric multiple units. And one of the things I was wondering is a lot of times when we talk about the cost of the, the infrastructure of, of digging the tunnel and and the portals and the stations, um, a lot of times we skip over the fact that we're, we would need to electrify um, for, for grade issues. You'd um, need to electrify the tunnel. Right. And so the way this was always looked at, I mean, back in the, in the 93 study, the Carl Task Force that, that I started on, the plan there was to, two options were looked at. One was full electrification of the commuter rail system. The other was just the tunnels. And, and the, the, just to make clear for your listeners, you can't run diesel locomotives through a three-mile tunnel. So I mean, it, it it was done in the in the past. It's not a good policy, so that would not that's not something that would would be workable. Uh, so at the bare minimum, unless you do electrify all the lines, you're going to have to use what are called dual mode locomotives, and these exist. They're in service in Montreal and in New Jersey, and they're and are elsewhere in the world, and they're basically just very much like the locomotives that we now use, except they have the ability to pick up power from a catenary overhead. In addition to the diesel prime mover, that do you think do you think it would um, really only make sense to just do the whole system, or is that a price shock factor? Maybe we should go line by line. So uh, the way I looked, at, you know, when in the '95 study, it was assumed that you would not do full electrification; you would do the dual mode. The dual mode equipment has now come on stream; it's working. It's it's been you know proven out as being pretty pretty solid. Um, and I've assumed for a long time that, given the sensitivity about the cost of the project. Uh, there was no point in thinking about full electrification, but I'm changing my mind for a couple of reasons. First of all, the case, the business case is there for doing it because of all the benefits. We talked better ridership, more fare box revenue, lower maintenance cost, and all that. Second, I think it's important when you're building public support for this project, not just to offer a slightly better version of your grandfather's railroad. I think this needs to be presented as something that's, that's actually a, a revolution, and it is that. And it's interesting. It's a revolution with just one mi- with one mile. It's three miles of actual tunnel, but right. one mile connection. It's not like a mile at the end of some line, like a system expansion. Right. This is a this is an, uh, an it's essentially a fix it project. It's a leverage project that gets so much more benefit out of what we've already got. Right. So then talking about. Uh, so then blowing that up a bit. So North-South Rail Link is at the heart of what I think what we're really hovering around here, This the, the elephant in the room, is we're talking about regional rail. Exactly. Like a, a regional rail network like S-Bahn or something like that. Exactly. Where, that, yeah. Or even in the U.S. we have uh, BART, which unfortunately is also seeing its age, not because of the problem with the model, but with the, the problem mm-hmm. with our lack of investment. Mm-hmm. Um 
where you know yeah you can live in daly city or or on the other side of the bay uh and theoretically when the electric when the tunnel is not electric uh electrocuting the the equipment when it's going through the trans bay tunnel um you know you have rapid transit levels of service inside the city and then outside you know yeah you have the operational flexibility to run two three car uh four car trains um so then I mean, should we? How do we go about this? How do we do? We talk about do we talk about north south rail link and then say, well, we'll electrify. You know, since since um, we already have uh, electrification all the way down to uh, to Providence, should, should we then choose some arbitrary uh, gateway city like uh, Lowell or yeah. or Haverhill to electrify, and that that's the first core link, and then and then you know phase by phase after that, or you know. How, how do we is there a way forward with this do we how because i think the biggest the biggest problem that we've talked when we talk about the north south rail link is people think about all oh, these transit advocates they just you know they're, they're they're playing around in their basements with these you know grand ideas about how we're gonna improve the system but how do we talk about this from the rider benefit of you can get from here to there and you can step onto the platform and you can have you can achieve this vision of you know a second transit network for Boston. Well Mark I think you've actually uh, come pretty close to the mark here in terms yeah. of the uh, what you outlined as a, as a way forward. Yes, the Providence to Boston component is uh, already electrified even though we just run diesel trains on it yep. with the exception of Acela but the uh, uh, and so you, since we're linking northern and southern lines in line pairs, you would choose the most heavily, um, the, the line with the highest ridership, which might be Lowell or Haverhill, as you say, mm-hmm. uh, to also electrify. But from what we're hearing, there are other lines that would also be you could, where it's pretty likely you could build a business case. And this needs to be done on, on an economically rational basis, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, and so that's how you would start. Now, the, the question then is, at what point do you bring in the other lines? You, you presume you're running dual-mode lo- equipment on those other lines so right. they can operate through the tunnel. Uh, but there's another approach, which, which you see in, the, in a number of the British um, uh, regional railroads, like the, the, the line, the, the, the Great Western Line. Thameslink. Uh, right, uh, that goes down to uh, Penzance. Yep. And, and they've just bought a new fleet of Hitachi high-platform regional rail trains, which are many of which are bimodal. I think about half of them are what are called bimodal, yep. meaning that they have diesel power packs, but they also can run as EMUs, and they can switch seamlessly between the two. So They don't have to stop? They like don't have to the stop. Silver line no, they don't wait six, six minutes or something? So somehow <laughs> they've solved that problem. So they actually just, they're just running at 125 miles an hour under electric power, and when the power runs out, they wow. switch to diesel, and they run at 100 miles an hour, mm-hmm. right? And they even are leaving, and, and when they electrify the lines, they can take out the diesel power pack and save the right. weight. Wow. And so in some cases, they actually leave the diesel power pack in because it gives them limp home capability in the event that there are any power issues. So, which, so, so like a, a, the train equivalent of a... Of a, of a Prius. Of a, or, or a... Uh, I'm Chevy trying to Volt think, or something. The Volt, the Chevy yeah, Volt. That's yeah. right. The French have another... They have a similar system. Bombardier built 550 train sets for the French Regional Rail of which 50% are bi-mode. And I saw one of these actually last uh, December in, uh, in, uh, in France, and it was just sitting on a platform, this beautiful, sleek train. And th- those are low platforms, so they wouldn't work here. But they're, uh, it's that same notion that mm-hmm. you, you build a train that has the flexibility to let you progressively electrify your system as the economics warrant. Right. Well, I think we have, 
it would it would probably take long enough for us to get into breaking ground uh, on the tunnel. We'll talk about that, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah we should. Um, that we have the opportunity to do some some pilot tests. Yeah, of, of different lines here and there because I think once the public begins to experience electrification, because right now I think there's only a small population of people who are really into transit and into the North South Rail Link that are really even understanding because when when you if if, if you know what you're looking for when you read Globe articles or other other press about the North South Rail Link, you'll notice that they might they may or may not mention electrification, mm-hmm. but it, it I think it's a throwaway line to most people who aren't familiar. Right, and I think if we yeah. actually had an electrified line, whether it's dual mode or whatever, uh, operating, then the the general public would begin to understand the benefits inherently. They would begin to once once they would ride it, they would begin to see the benefits. Right. Um, so, speaking of timing, wh- what is the timing? And also, we, let's begin to talk about perceptions because we're we're dealing with the perceptions of uh, the big dig and the boondoggles. And uh, I was fascinated that you mentioned Boston having the veto because I think people who come a little bit later are are, are experiencing the blowback of maybe the suburbs and, and western Massachusetts feeling like well Boston mm-hmm. gets all the infrastructure money right. even though I would I would um, posit that the north that, that the the central artery was money spent in Boston proper but actually was more for the benefit of suburban you know commuters well I'm not, I, I'm not sure about that I think I think you know it's very clear that the, the biggest success story of the artery is not so much in transportation terms but in urban design terms. It's created the Rose Kennedy Greenway. It's been an incredible boon to the property owners all along it. That's for sure. Granted. I mean, instead, the Rose Wharf, instead of sitting looking out at a rusting hulk of an elevated highway, now has a park in its front yard. And it was paid for by the federal government and mm-hmm. the Massachusetts taxpayer. So, with no value capture. Uh, really. With no value <laughs> capture, exactly. And so um, I think it, you know, it was a, it, a home run in terms of its, its impact on the city of Boston. It didn't do much. Uh, for, I, I mean, with the exception of the Ted Williams Tunnel, which is fantastic. Yeah. I think you know its its benefits are a lot more limited. I'd say in terms of regional. So, but, but we are dealing with a perception, especially mm-hmm. people outside of Boston, that think, well, we've spent money on boondoggles, and we're always pouring money into Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that perception. I think there's the perception. You met with um, um, Governor Baker and um, Dukakis and Weld were there, and I kind of got the the feeling that Governor Baker was more humoring people. Um, what do you think as far as our perceptions changing around the North South Rail Link? We've got a. Um, I feel like we're kind of backing up against uh, a, a time limit here with regard to expansion of uh, South Station. That mm-hmm. if we yeah. break ground on that, it's yeah. really jeopardizing this project. Is the perception timeline matching up with the need, the real breaking ground timeline that we need? Well, I do think there's an urgency to this, and I think you see a spectrum of opinion depending on you know it. It, it takes a this. There's a you know public policy here is is like a super tanker. And you're not, it doesn't turn on a dime. But we've made some very significant inroads in the last year in particular. And I think if we can keep this moving, I think people are going to realize that uh, particularly if, there were, if it weren't for the no-build costs, you know, if we didn't have to do something, you could say, well, let's just wait. But if we have to spend $2 billion expanding our surface terminals, that gives people a motivation. to. It sort of focuses minds. And there's another one, too. The city of Boston realized in the Olympic process that they could be gaining $100 million a year in property tax revenue if Widette Circle was developed uh, with, you know, decking over all of the existing rail stuff. But they were going to have to give back like 20 years of tax abatements because of the cost of the deck. So there was something, uh, I think a month ago, uh, the city sort of uh, freaked out when when the Mass DOT uh, filed a declaration that they were going to go ahead with Widette Circle as a layover. And this sort of gotten Mayor Walsh's attention. And I think... 
our hope is that as as these multiple impacts start to become real for people, they're going to and and they realize that the north south rail link is actually could be done within a pretty reasonable time frame. And let's talk about what that is. Uh, it starts to become more thinkable and a more you know for a long time the, it was sort of like you. It's not a question of whether you can do the rail link. It's it's a question of whether you can even consider doing the rail link. Or talk about it. It was sort of off the table because of the big dig. So now we're allowed to talk about. Now it. we're allowed to talk about. Now, do, you, do you think the post office, the post office controversy, which is the post office is is sitting pretty on their land right now, and now that they know the state wants it, is asking for a lot of money? Do you think that that works in our favor? Well, I think um, we don't know what the post office is going to do, or when they're going to do it, or if they're ever going to do it. They could decide tomorrow that they're going to sell the property, or it could be ten years from now. So in a funny way, uh, you know, I think people who are who are supporting South Station expansion because they want South Coast Rail, which I which we also want, uh, and see South South Station expansion as kind of a necessary step toward that. Uh, it may turn out that it's actually no sooner they're not going to get their capacity any sooner that way than with the North South Rail Link, or maybe even less. Right. So uh, the Rail Link at least is within our control more, but the. Um, and I think there are a lot of other benefits in terms of the long-term capacity and, and the kind of political support you get from something that benefits the whole region and not just a few lines. But um, And you, you're starting to talk about timeline. Timeline, yeah, yeah. thank you. The, uh, the issue there is the, the construction timeline that was worked out by the, by the construction geniuses that were brought together in 1997 for this purpose uh, was something like six or seven years to build from start to finish, maybe even a little less. And the... There's obviously, to that has to be added, uh, the political process, the environmental review, the permitting, the fu- the financing. But I am trying to keep people focused on a date, which is Boston 2030, which is the 400th anniversary of the city of Boston. And that's 16 years away. 14 years away, sorry. And the... Um, and it's possible that the north-south railing could be done in 14 years. It could be done in less than 14 years if we really got going on it. And I think it's important to kind of hold a deadline in front of people. And one of the, another driver that has to be taken really seriously is this whole interest rate thing. Because I remember many years ago owning a piece of property and having a mortgage that was 12%, right? And thinking that I would, if I could ever get a mortgage for 7%, I would have died and gone to heaven. Well, I did end up later having a mortgage for 7%. And now it's 3%. Who would have imagined? And if we end up back at these norm, uh, this is a very abnormal window historically, and there's a historic opportunity here, which we're on the risk of losing. And if interest rates head back up to normal territory of six percent, seven percent, or God knows more, what are we going to say? How are we going to explain why we didn't do these projects when we could afford it, when we had legions of people out of work? I mean, it's it's really baffling. We've got a very uh, strange way of arranging our economy. To put a, a, a very fine point on um, the question of expansion that we've kind of danced around, but we haven't said explicitly, the fine question would be, if we expand South Station before we do, and, and then say we did eventually, maybe it would be delayed 30 years, we did eventually do the North-South Rail Link, mm-hmm. would we end up having platforms that were useless and then we'd end up selling the property again? Yeah, you would. It, just exactly. like we did with the post office? Uh, exactly. There's, there's no need for... Th- there's no, there would be no need for the platforms. There's no need for 20 the, platforms. There's no need for 13 platforms. Yeah. You might keep a few at South Station. Because maybe not every Amtrak train wants to run all the way through. But there'd, there'd be no need for additional platforms. The capacity increase from, from the rail link would be dramatically greater than you would get from any additional platforms. Yep. And you, you just mentioned Amtrak, and earlier you mentioned um, federal funding dollars. Um, right. Does this does this project, I, I assume it, 
really needs federal funding to go forward. Or you know, I, I think it could probably be funded without federal funding. But are the FTA, um, the Congress, um, FRA too, the FRA probably more likely. Do you, do you feel like they're on the same page? Those the the. The, the groups that we need to be behind this at the federal level, are they behind this? Are they in the same timeline? Are, are, are we working in concert? I think the, we're not working in the way that we need to work. I think that the FRA and the FTA look to the states to set the agenda, and then they try to be supportive. They don't drive the agenda. Um, but I think um, – and this, the, the Commonwealth has been quite negligent, actually, in terms of not only not pursuing this project but not creating the kinds of regional coalitions that are necessary to bring – federal money in. If you can contrast that with what's happened around New York City and the Harbor Tunnels there, uh, sorry, the the Hudson Tunnels, with um, uh, the congressional delegation from New York City are out there basically banging heads together to get this money. They're not waiting around for other people to say, would you like some money? Hmm. So, and they've actually been incredibly effective at bringing in federal dollars to support these necessary infrastructure investments. Now, you could say, well, we're not New York. Well, we're not quite New York, but Boston is actually a really major economic hub. And and so what we're saying is that Massachusetts needs to cooperate and coordinate and lead a, pro- a regional process. Don't forget, we may be underrepresented in the House of, of Representatives because of our population shifts, but we still have our two senators in each state. And we've got Susan Collins in Maine. She sits on the on the on the uh, appropriations committee, um, and um, I'm forgetting someone else actually from Maine as well. Uh, but it's. Uh, we need to if we get their support and and if they they and if they were very supportive actually ten years ago and and they finally just got tired of Massachusetts not leading the process and I think if we come to them and we say you know we're going to be at the table we're going to fight for your interests and not just our own um, we actually could make a pretty strong case now but I should also stress this doesn't hinge on some sort of high proportion of or unusual proportion of, of federal participation and support we think that the business case here is fundamentally so strong that this could attract a significant amount of private investment. And as you may know, um, managers of major funds around the world are struggling with current current equity markets and bond markets to make a decent return on investment. And there's a large Canadian investment fund uh, which manages $250 billion, uh, which has just started uh, an infrastructure division. They're already heavily invested in infrastructure, but they're creating a new division not just to invest in it but to build it. Uh, They're called the Caisse de Dépôt et Placement de Québec, CDPQ. And uh, we met with them last week. They were very interested in the project. Does that mean they're going to invest in it? Totally premature. But they're interested they even went so far as to say it looks like a no-brainer from a, from a financial yeah. standpoint. Now, there's a lot of a lot of information, further information to be gathered before a final judgment can be made, but that's encouraging. Yeah, um, way curveball. But it sounds like also China might be interested too, because I mean they're building they they're building they're completing now a, uh, a light rail line in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. They're doing so many infrastructure projects right. in Africa. Uh, unfortunately, it's a mix of both transit and uh, highway construction. Right. To well, you have Hitachi yeah. as the prime yeah. investor in Texas Central Rail. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they've they, they actually when they were when they won the contracts in in the UK they didn't just supply the trains they actually said we will sell you the trains yeah. we will build the maintenance depot and we will maintain the trains for the life of the trains thirty years yeah the new red line and orange line cars 
You know, well, there, there's definitely an interest yeah. from from China to play in the right. infrastructure yeah. sector. I, I don't know if they want to go so far. I don't know if we have any current models right now where anybody's actually not only furnishing the uh, uh, producing the equipment, but also doing the maintenance. Um, uh, contracts because I know that's a huge thing in the UK um, where it's it's a full length yes. contract Soup to, nuts. to yeah and to there's manage a lo- there's yeah. a logic to that because who knows yeah. the equipment better than the people who built it of course yeah why would why would the why would we burden the agency with that kind of stuff but right. I think there's also a lot of suspicion and, and there's also definitely issues with the way that pri- railway railway contracts have been privatized in the UK um, I think we could probably have an entire episode where we have a, a, a podcast uh, ep- uh, guest uh, from the UK who can probably enumerate those in uh, many facets. But I think, uh, I mean, going back to the UK, one of the biggest uh, cautions that I've heard from people who who are close to, to Thameslink, which is the, I think, one of the suburban rail connectors but all the way uh, from the north to the southern suburbs uh, through London, is um, some of them feel like the investment that's happening today should have been made originally when they first did the upgrade of the Thameslink program. So um, I, 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 it's it's interesting to see that brought up as an example. Um, but I'm curious, what are your thoughts on going you know full bore on a on a full investment line versus like you know, a phased approach where we, you know, just get it up to a, a level of service that we expect and then and then going with the upgrade? So that's a great question. And there's been a lot of discussion about that because yeah. phasing, from a financial standpoint, phasing sounds pretty attractive. Yeah. You know, get the thing in the ground, preserve the alignment, and then sort of build from there. But when you look at how, that, how the phasing might work, uh, my sense is that it makes more sense it makes a lot of sense for the electrification component. It doesn't make as much sense for the heavy construction. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that the cost of remobilizing to go back into the corridor and add some new tunnel or expand a station or add a station would be really pretty intense. Yeah. There's an economy and efficiency in doing it at once while you're at it. And so I am skeptical about phasing that either doesn't connect with all the transit lines or cuts out a significant part because I think it, it would be I think the, the easiest way to see the phasing work is, just, is to propose it with the recognition that once things started moving even before construction began you'd have everybody else clamoring to get the rest of it into the project oh, of course you know because then you see the benefits and exactly. then everybody's I don't want to <laughs> be left out <laughs> you know the one thing we haven't we haven't talked about yet is um you know, a lot of people would probably say, "Oh, tunneling, boring." Um, just look what's happening right now in Seattle with with Bertha. And no, I, why <laughs> is that not a concern? I don't I'd think we've say, raised I'm so that glad yet. you brought that up. Uh, we talk about Bertha, Bertha, and tunnel boring. How much? What's we're calling time? What are we at? Ten minutes. Ten, Ten minutes. minutes. Okay, great. Thank you. The uh, so tunnel boring machine technology. Uh, quick quick preview. If anybody knows about it, it's essentially an, an automated machine that drills through the ground, and in one a series of integrated operations, it bores the hole provides temporary support, provides um, protection from hydrostatic pressure, water pressure if there is any, and it, it constructs a tunnel lining on a, essentially this linear assembly line that just moves through the earth. And they're very, very safe. They're very predictable. We've had, t- and it's, it's actually been a revolution in underground construction. There have been a couple of failures, the most conspicuous of which was in Seattle with the Alaska Way Viaduct. And what needs to be said about that is that 
That was the world's largest tunnel boring machine, 54 feet in diameter, I think. It was built by, it was not built by the, one of the world's premier vendors of tunnel boring machines like Hera Nectar Robbins. It was built by Hitachi. And people who know the design say that there were some really serious flaws in the bearing design of that machine, that, that they weren't uh, properly engineered. There also were some obstructions in the construction, in, in the <laughs> right of way that they drove it into. Yeah. I'm not, I, that may have played some kind of role. But needless to say, we're not talking about anything like that. And what I want to remind people is that the, the Red Line extension in Cambridge was built with tunnel boring machines in the 80s, no problem. We have half a dozen water projects, including the 26-mile tunnel out under Boston Harbor tunnel boring machine, no problem. Nobody knows about tunnel boring machines in Massachusetts because they've been so uneventful. <laughs> they've yeah. been so effective. They're the, out of sight. What, what would yep. be the type of diameter machine that we would be looking there, to use there, here? There are two options that have been looked at. One is to do, first of all, the rail link has been studied with two tracks or four tracks. And one of the tasks in this upcoming study is to really narrow that down and make a final decision. Um, but in the four-track option, which in the in the 95 to 2003 study was had the most cost benefit, was was projected as being two 41-foot diameter tunnels. Now, in talking with tunnel experts beyond the original consultants, there, you'll hear a lot of people say, you know what, we like single-track tunnels. We like this. We'd rather have four smaller tunnels than two bigger ones. Uh, most of the rail links in the world have been built with these single-bore tunnels, London Crossrail, case in point, Leipzig, Malmo. Um, what's better about them, they're smaller, less risk, you know, just easier to deal with in every respect. But the Zurich project used a single uh, twin-track big tunnel, you know, 30, I think it was like 39 feet in diameter, something like that. Yeah. I'm so it does happen. That's something that's going to have to get worked out in, in design development, but that's uh, they are very, very safe. I'm going to quickly acknowledge a conversation that happened earlier today on Twitter also. Uh, the MBTA is uh, announced earlier today that it's actually going to be suspending service, uh, again, to service some of the equipment in the tunnels between um, Harvard Square and Davis Square, which is deep mm -hmm. bore tunnels is, like, yeah. the, like what yeah. we're talking about. But the technology has improved significantly in the last uh, three decades at this it point has, now. Yeah. So, uh, so not to say that um, I don't know. There's a, there's this also this very widespread perception that even if we built it today, it would uh, leak tomorrow. So well, but I I, th yeah. I think that that construction has to do with it's not not leaks. That that has to do with the. Um, there's definitely water intrusion that has brought that has the the water problem is really is yeah. is something it has it has to be taken very seriously yeah. and and I think you've got to differentiate between the stations and the tunnels because yep. the tunnels is a more controlled operation absolutely and there's several approaches you can take to it the standard approach is you there the, you're you're building the tunnel lining out of precast concrete segments yep. because they're precast they're made under controlled conditions they're not being poured in the middle of January in some form out on the construction site so they're actually very very high quality right. they have neoprene gaskets between the segments and they're locked together under pressure and they're grouted in place. So it's, that's actually a very good system. In the Zurich project, which had this larger diameter tunnel, they had enough groundwater issues of concern to them that they actually did a double lining. Mm -hmm. They did the precast and then they did a cast in place lining within that in the upper portion, which with a membrane encapsulated between the two. So, and I don't know all the details on that, but clearly there was enough concern that they wanted to go the extra mile in the waterproofing. Right. From a construction standpoint, it's the stations that are actually going to be much more challenging because yes. they're bigger volumes. And uh, they're, they're on the, uh, and I, I don't want to make, I don't want to create an alarm about this because uh, Porter Square is, uh, was built, it was a mined station. It's a large volume. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was mined out of the Cambridge Argillite uh, stratum that's, uh, that's the bedrock here. 
Uh, and the reason Porter Square is so deep is precisely to allow that, so that it didn't have to have a. They could work from below without having to do a cut and cover or right. something. Which like is much it. more disruptive. It, exactly. Right. So yeah. That's why people were so unaware the red line work was used. What's, what's the um, calculation between two tunnels and three tunnels? I've, I've seen um, both uh, proposals. Right. The issue there, uh, it's interesting. I mean... Uh, what did I say tunnels? I meant stations. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, um, there's an issue about the tunnels, two, yeah. two versus four, and some people yep. have said three. So... Because you often have un- imbalances, asymmetries in the demand. but And you also have you – know, one of the reasons for more than two tunnels relates to inner city versus regional trains. The Amtrak trains have a longer dwell time. People have luggage. It takes longer. So you want to make sure make, – keep trains moving through the system and not have, have the Amtrak trains sort of blocking you. Uh, there are different solutions to that. But um, there's also a sense that, again, the tunnel cost is not the biggest part of the project cost. So it's better – maybe better to go with more. But it is also on the other side. Most of the European systems are two tracks, right? And so, and right. So, what I meant was um, two, stations two, downtown. The two, issue with the station number of stations, and we'll cut this up, is basically yeah. you want connectivity to all the transit lines. And if there's a way to do that with two stations, I'd all be, be all for it. You get better ridership that way and lower cost. But it, but that has not been really fully demonstrated how that could be done. Yeah. Um, I'm going to quickly acknowledge uh, some of the other technical constraints that we haven't talked about because we've mostly been talking about electrification. Mm -hmm. When you talk about modernization, we're also probably going to be talking about signals modernization and also updating our federal crashworthiness regulations, which limit the kind of equipment that we can be running. Because I know that we have some some railheads probably listening to the podcast saying... Buff strength. Yeah, (laughs) buff strength. Because, you know, trains, they'll crash inevitably, and we just have to make sure that everyone survives. So the deal with buff strength (laughs) was that back in the 1920s, the Federal Railway Administration made this requirement that every passenger rail car operating on a freight line had to be able to withstand something like 800,000 pounds of load. Be able to crush. crush. Without without deformation. Yes. Which essentially means that U.S. rail cars are are bank vaults on wheels. Yep. And there are other ways to deal with safety that we know from the aviation and automobile industries that don't involve armoring everything to mm-hmm. that degree. So the Europeans have dynamic testing and crumple zones, and we still have this 1920s era, you know, 800,000-pound static load requirement. Yeah. It's changing. FRA has been doing a lot of studies, and they've actually started granting waivers, uh, right. uh, as you probably know. And this is a key to bringing in the EMUs. And there, yeah, there's some there's some uh, federal uh, reform on the w- along the way, but we that is that can probably be an entire episode on its own. And so. should be. <laughs> and get some people in from the Volpe Transportation Center to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're doing some of the work. Um, well. In any case, thank you very much for listening. Be sure to visit transitmatters.info for more news and information and subscribe. Uh, you can subscribe to the MBTA subreddit. That's mbta.reddit.com. Post your new, post some news. Start new discussions. Uh, that's a really great way to, uh, to get involved in the discussion if you're uh, kind of throwing your tweets into the uh, into the vacuum of Twitter. You can also email us at feedback at transitmatters.info. We love hearing your tips, constructive feedback, and compliments, of course. Um, you can follow Jeremy Mendelson, our co-founder here at Transit Matters at Critical Transit. You can follow me, Mark Ibunya, at Digital SciGuy. I tweeted J-A-R-J-O-H. And you can find me at Hatchback31. And thanks for tuning in and bearing with us on our Facebook live stream as we've struggled to get the audio right. We'll try to get a dedicated feed out of the soundboard next time if we can. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes to catch this and other episodes. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates. And finally, again, you can subscribe and volunteer at transitmatters.info to stay connected with us because transit matters. Thanks, guys.
Thank you. Thank Thanks. you.